We meet some people who always make us happy to see them. They are individuals who are simply solid. People who are so thoughtful that it radiates from them to you. This is Bernie Foster, the ninth of nine. Being the ninth of nine, his childhood home was a place of action, noise, and filled with a whole lot of people. It was a place that one could come and know that there was a place for you and a seat at the table filled with laughs, love, and a good meal. Many years later, Bernie has made that same type of home for himself and his family, that same type of peace and welcome. Everyone should have a friend like Bernie, and we have been lucky to be able to call him ours. Welcome to Evanston Rules. I'm Larise Bell, here with my co-inspirers, Michael Duvall and Ron Whitmore. Today, we are thrilled to have our favorite Bernie Foster, who tells it like it is. Thanks for joining us here today to catch up. Let's jump right in. You come from a house as one of nine children. Tell us more. I was the youngest of nine. My mom was actually married twice, so I think in Michigan and somewhere um, after that, she ended up in Ohio. That's how she met my dad. They ended up moving to Evanston. So we ended up in Evanston. We grew, I grew up on Sherman and Crane in the big house on the corner that used to be a gas station. I remember so, it well. Yeah. Yes. I didn't know. I didn't uh, know it used to be a gas station, though. Oh yeah, that was a gas station. That's why it had that driveway that came on the crane. You come in on the crane side, and then you can go out on the front on Sherman. Oh yeah, yeah. Funny thing about that gas station is that something I didn't know until I was older is there was a drive, you know, a pit that you could drive over in the backyard to work on cars. So my mom was worried about the pit that was in the the yard of our old house because it was a pit that you would drive a car over and then climb down in the pit and you would be able to work underneath the car while you were standing up. So she was always worried about Perky doing something in this pit with a car or something. So what she had us do, our the side of our house was all asphalt. It was not very thick, so she had us break it up like big hammers like sledgehammers break it all up and then we threw it all into this pit to fill it in so he couldn't use it but she also didn't tell us that she threw my dad's guns in there because she was more worried about getting those than anything so we just automatically assumed that it was just to keep perky out but it was also to get rid of those guns because she had thought about a good way to get rid of them was to put them in that pit and then have us fill it in I always followed Perky around as best I could. He didn't always let me, but <laughs> that's basically how I got to meet Lloris and Ronnie Crawford and all of those guys is through Perky. So I did not go to Miller, which was the uh, elementary school. I was one of the first to go over to uh, Martin Luther King Laboratory School in Foster when it opened, mm-hmm. the experimental school. So I went there and my siblings all went to uh, Miller School originally. And then I believe Tina and Perky transferred to um, King Lab later. We were bussed over there. And that school for me was like one of the best experiences I remember as a young, young person in Evanston because I actually had uh, black principals, <clears throat> which was really rare. One of the principals was Joe Payton. I think he was an ex-football player because he was this real big black guy, (laughs) light-skinned black guy. And he was just really stern, but he was a fair guy. And I remember that. I had uh, black teachers, which was really, um, really different. Um, Because later on, when I got over the nickels, I think we had a lot less uh, teachers of color there. but yeah, that was really a great experience for me growing up. I do remember that part. And, uh, so having black male administrators and teachers, mm-hmm. uh, it, you say it profoundly affected you. Um, how did how did that look for you in learning? Um, I, it just felt uh, easier to learn. It felt like I was in a place that I belonged. Did you ever experience racism in Evanston? Thinking back, I mean, I'm sure I have. I mean, I used to hang out with Roddy Crawford at Northwestern. You know, we'd go over there, skateboard, drink hot chocolate and stuff. 
and people look at you like, what are you doing here? And I just, I don't think I was aware of it as much or just, I don't know. It just, it didn't feel like it. I mean, I felt like I was in this little bubble, you know, as you get older and then you go to places. Like when I left Evanston or not left, but when I went to work for ComEd after graduating high school, well, it took about, I think it took me three years to get hired. And I just kept trying um, because my brother-in-law had, two of my brother-in-laws were working there already. And they kept saying, yeah, you got to come up to comment, Willie Carson and Daryl Jackson. So I kept, I was working at Leroy's at the time. Um, and uh, I just kept applying and applying and they would never call back. Um, so I think like the third year I was trying, uh, I actually got an interview and um, when the guy uh, interviewed me, he was a white guy and he actually came out and said, he says, uh, um, I said, you know, I've been trying to get hired for three years now, blah, blah, blah. Nothing's happening. He goes, well, I'm going to tell you the truth. He says, the reason you don't, you weren't uh, interviewed, he says, is because 90% of the time when we try to hire Black people from Evanston, they fail the drug test. What did you say to him in that moment? I couldn't really say a whole lot. And I'm just like, really? And I'm, and I'm trying to figure out how to take that, right? So... Right. Um, but that for me was just, you know, the start of uh, seeing the differences and uh, how being, you know, how being raised in Evanston. So that kind of started my, um, my growing up life, I guess, as, as being in, in, you know, in a place that wasn't Evanston and seeing the difference and how in Evanston things were really different when it came to race um, and just growing up, you know, in Evanston, having friends that were white, and then uh, go out to the suburbs where I worked, Mount Prospect, and other places where they hadn't grown up in an environment where there was a mix of people. Um, and then the white people there grew up in places like McHenry County and all those places where there's no black people. Yeah, what was your reaction, Bernie, when uh, the person that you interviewed with tried to put all Evanston black people in a box? How'd that make you feel? Oh, it made me feel terrible. And I didn't know how to respond because, you know, I'm trying to get a job. Um, and I'm like, is this a place I really want to work? And I, I think I did tell him, I said, well, that's definitely not true. I said, because first of all, I don't do drugs. You know, so I think I came back with something like that. But yeah, that was, that was just, the, you know, the beginning. Uh, you know, because once I finally got hired, you know, every day for me was... You know, um, I started as a meter reader um, and uh, I worked, like I said, out in the suburbs, Mount Prospect, Schaumburg, who I was out in Inverness, uh, Palatine, all those places back in the 80s, the early 80s. Um, and there were very few people of color there. So, I mean, I had incidents where people were letting dogs out on me on purpose as a meter reader in their yards. Uh, I had one guy in Palatine call in and say, if you let that blank blank back in my yard, I'm going to kill him. I think it's back. I think I remembered this, but then I've, I've forgotten it until you raised it. Tell us uh, about Leroy's and who owned Leroy's. Okay. Uh, because that actually is also an institutional moment for Evanston mm -hmm. uh, back then. So yeah, let me back up. Um, before I left or got hired to come in, um, I think it was my sophomore year. Junior, you know, junior year, I was in vocational experience, and then I'm sure you remember him, uh, Mr. Williams. Yes. Um, yeah. So he ran that program, and I was working for Leroy's at the time through Darren, his son, because Darren and I were best friends. We grew up like three houses away, so you know we did everything back then. Um, and I ended up working at his gas station, which was a mobile station at Dempster and Dodge. Um, he had that, and then he had the uh, actual garage on 2323 Main Street, which is across from the um, shopping center there on Main and Fowler. Um, and Leroy, his dad, owned, owned the shop. All of his sons worked there at some point. That was Leroy Jr., Keith, Kevin, and Darren. And he had one daughter, her name was Karen. So yeah, being in that neighborhood and also worked with Doc Cannon. I know you guys remember Doc. One of the things that would be important is Leroy was an African-American man, black man, but on the business. Yes. 
and owned a business. Uh, he he was very well known in Evanston. He worked on, or you know, at the shop there, we worked on the police cars, and just everybody knew Leroy. Uh, yeah. Leroy was, you know, you know, if you had a car issue, you took it to Leroy. That's right. Uh, yeah. And I believe originally he started on Chicago Avenue. He worked at the Shell Station. I think he worked for somebody at that time. And then, then he ended up getting his own, you know, like I said, his own gas station, his own garage. And yeah, he was uh, a really good mechanic. I mean, uh, he taught me everything I knew about cars. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was younger. I can't remember how old I was. I was probably seven, eight or younger. I'm not sure. So all of these guys that I, you know, worked for and um, dealt with were black and they were role models for me um, that really helped me. Um, grow into the person I am today and uh, I you know I never forget those those people that were instrumental in that um, so yeah I worked with Leroy and, and Doc was another Evanston fixture um, he started working for the city of Evanston in the forestry department he was another uh, black man in Evanston who had his own landscaping business, tree service. Uh, he had two sons. His oldest son was Tom Cannon. And then his younger son, Doc Jr. So yeah, we all hung out. And also there was a their cousin named Woody. Mm-hmm. So you guys remember Woody. Woody yep. passed away too. Um, Woody and I became like, after we got older, we were like best friends. Uh, I miss Woody to this very day. Um, and that was before I got married, we hung out a lot. And even after I got married, Woody and I were still best friends, which is tough because I'm married with kids and he was single, but we still found time to go to the Cubs games because he was the biggest Cubs fan in the world. I want to circle back to um, the racism question, Mm -hmm. Um, your experience in Evanston and your experiences uh, as you read meters in some of the suburbs that didn't welcome or accept your blackness, um, yeah. even though you were doing a job. Yeah. Uh, did Evanston prepare you to deal with those issues? I mean, how did they affect you? And did Evanston influence you in any way in terms of how to handle those issues? That's a tough question. And I don't think there was any specific um, path to them teaching me how to do I mean. I think it was the fact that I was tolerant of other people Ah. that I didn't respond to some of the negative stuff because my mom is from Virginia. Her granddad was almost white. I think, um, I think he was half Greek or something. And, um, growing up, I think what taught me was my mom that everybody is the same. You know, we all come from different places, but essentially we're saying, and we just never were raised to be um, not liking someone just because they were different. Right. And as I, you know, as I was growing up, we always had different people in our house. We always went to different people's homes, which, like I said, is rare because when I met old, you know, I got older and I met other, you know, black people I worked with and stuff, they had not been introduced to those type of situations where there was uh, people different from them, you know, just their friends and, you know, being really close friends. So I think growing up in Evanston was a, you know, a huge help in helping me navigate because um, I was able to really be in a place that most of the people of color weren't. for some reason, I was accepted um, by a lot of people who weren't of color, especially at Comet. Um, and it was it was mostly because of I think it was my work ethic. So you you had these these black male role models, right? And mm-hmm. and, and there are some that say, you know, if I see people that look like me doing some things that are positive, then I believe that I can begin to do that, right? Why? Mm-hmm were they important for you? Um, and how did they have an impact on your life? For me, they were important because like I said, my parents were divorced. Uh, my dad, you know, he took us places occasionally. He more or less took my sisters more than he took the son. Um, 
So it was important for me because I had a black father figure in all of these people that took yes. time to actually teach me things and like, you know, about working on cars, but he also taught me a lot of other things. How do you behave and what do you, you know, what do you want to do as you move on? Yes. So to say. Um, and how do you get there? Uh, and, and it's harder for people of color usually sometimes when they start a business. When he crossed all kinds of uh, different, you know, cultures and things like that by having, you know, people, white people, and everybody came to Leroy. Right. Um, and, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, you know, you got the police department, you know, utilizing a black, a black man's garage, which that itself was, you know, like, oh, this is, you know, that's different. And, and you know, he had a you know, nice home. He had his, his kids went to school, went to college. He showed me that, you know, we can do things even though there may be people telling us we can't. Absolutely powerful. And those experiences you had with positive Black role models, how have you chosen to play that forward in your life? The most I was doing is at Northwestern. I was working, uh, running that program. Most of the students that worked for me were students of color. Um, and you have some students that were not of color and um, they come from the same situations where you know their parents aren't rich and millionaires <laughs> uh, because Northwestern is a private university and it does have students that um, their parents are you know are well connected and well funded so for those students um, that worked for me I did my best to show them how uh, you can be successful as you know you know when, no matter what you're doing you know the program wasn't like it wasn't like a top student affairs program but it was, I thought it was a very well-run program. Um, I had all undergraduate students working for me. And um, they did, ex you know, exactly what they were supposed to do. Understanding the importance of driving people's kids around is what I would tell them. Because mm -hmm. that's what they were doing, driving people's kids around. And I said, it's a huge liability. Um, they were already learning the educational part of this. But it's, it's, it was also for me to show them that if you make a commitment, you need to stick to it because they work from 7 p.m. till 3 a.m. Okay. And this was seven days a week program. Only time we were closed was when the university was closed. Um, so the students would work anywhere from 16 hours a week or more. I had some that would work three or four days a week because they need the money. And that is not easy at a private university at Northwestern. And it's sad that they have to because it, it's unfair. They're working. I mean, some of them are actually sending money home to their families. Oh, wow. And yeah, that's, and that's something people just don't understand. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's heartbreaking because they don't have the time to focus and study or do just their academics. They're doing almost full-time jobs just to you know, support themselves and, and some of their you know, families at home at a university that was not designed for them. Tell us a, a little bit, because you are an Evanstonian, but you worked at Northwestern. What do you feel the community connect is between Evanston and Northwestern? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I don't think there's a whole lot because it, it's okay. For me, growing up in Evanston, you know, playing, we used to play down there. Me and Ronnie used to skateboard down there, ride bikes and stuff. We'd be all over that campus. And then going back years later to work there, I'm like, this place is in the wrong place. It, it just didn't feel right. Because having all these people who would never probably live in Evanston at this university that's in Evanston, it was really a struggle. Um, right. And to have that huge difference in socioeconomic background, to me, it's still, it's like mind boggling. You know, I see the, the, the kids that are like freshmen in college driving Mercedes and stuff I'm like, who can afford that? But that's, that's the culture. And, and that university was designed for rich white kids that, you know, Ugh. families had had the money. You know, they try, but it, it's really hard and it's a struggle for the students. And I got to see a lot of the inner workings of that stuff. And it was, it, to me, it was heartbreaking because they tried their best, but they just really can't grasp what it's like to be a student of color there. And, and all of the, you know, hurdles and barricades in their way. You went to ETHS. Did you feel that 
black kids and white kids were treated differently at the high school level? Okay, so for me, here we go. <laughs> All right, having three older brothers and neither one had graduated from high school. So for me, I started working at a gas station when I was 16, the Shell Station on Chicago Avenue. So that was my, after my freshman year of high school. I played football freshman year. So sophomore year, I decided that, you know, I had a job, I had a pocket full of money. I figured I was going to hang out with the cool guys, right? <laughs> so uh, I ended up passing one class sophomore year. Okay. So do you know what happened? Jackie didn't After have that. that. Jackie wasn't into that. <laughs> she was not going to let her last son fail. She actually took me to court, to juvenile court. And I actually had a judge in Skokie and I had to go to court. And I met with the judge and the judge told me, this was a blind judge who told me, I never want to see you in my courtroom again. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Your mom um, got to him too. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. He he definitely he talked to me and said, "Look, you're going to end up here or here." And he said, "That's not going to work." And your mother loves you. And after that, I started going back to class. So I had to work really hard to graduate in '81 with my class. That was my story there. Is uh, how my mom took me to court. Bertie, uh, take us back. Um, yeah. You used the term navigation. You you okay. learned navigation skills, mm -hmm. the ability to go in and out of cultures, right? Yes. And yes. Still be Bernie. Yeah, um, exactly. And then you mentioned uh, being thoughtful and responsive. You, I don't think you used the word thoughtful, but that's how I heard it. Okay, so here's the question, because I'm having been in your house, your home, uh, mm -hmm. and having um, to embrace your mother. Mm -hmm. uh, because she was really good when you walked through that front door. Because I think also I remember uh, the phrase I like to use is soul doesn't have a color. Yeah. Right. So tell me how your mother raised you in a house full of kids. I mean, you had, you had lots of kids in your house all the time. Mm -hmm. Tell me how your experience is also in your home. Because sometimes when you would get to that third floor, right, <laughs> you would know. Yeah, but, I mean... It, yeah, it was yeah, it, it was amazing that she was able to raise all of us. Uh, I think her gift was working with young people because that's what she did. She taught for years. My mom went back and got her master's in her forties, um, which is amazing for a woman amazing. who had nine children. Hmm. Nine children. Bernie, we talked a lot about the importance of black males in in the lives of not only black boys but black girls. And, but I think it's important and necessary to talk about your mom too. Mm -hmm. You know, um, tell us about what it was like a little bit uh, growing up in the house with your mom. She did everything for us. I mean, she was a mom and a dad all in one, right? Um, the times I remember, you know, were, you know, getting into, when I was in King Lab, catching the bus to school and stuff like that. Um, and somehow she was always able to, you know, cook dinner and be there and uh, still have time. I mean, I, I'm, I, the biggest thing I remember was when I was uh, like in kindergarten and I was only doing half days of school. And then I would get to come home for the half a day of school with her and I would always wash the dishes. So that was something I remembered, you know, from being young is just being, just her and I, and I'm washing the dishes. Because um, I, I, I really, I honestly can't tell you how she did it all. Um, you know, having nine children, I was the youngest of nine. Um, my older sisters had, you know, a couple of them have already moved out by then, but it was still a lot. Um, and for her to manage everything, and then later on in life, going back to school to finish her master's degree, um, it was just amazing. and. I don't know how she did it all uh, and kept the job because she had to keep working. So, and, and I don't remember her ever really being sick or anything, mm -hmm. which is, you know, a, you know, a blessing in, in itself. And, but yeah. Um, 
talk about the strong black woman trope. You know, I, I have memories yeah. of, of you, of your siblings, of your mom. And, you know, after a hard day of work, coming home to kids, your mom always had a pot on the stove, you know, and yeah. to this day, every time I make spaghetti, I try to recreate Jackie Foster's famous spaghetti. I, I still don't know how she was able to manage all that by herself. Um, and, you know, and to just be able to navigate all those things. And she fought for everyone, every last one of them. I mean, you know, you know this, this motherless child never felt anything but mothered and welcomed as yeah. well as like, I got a whole group of siblings. There was never a moment, even with an overflowing house. Mm -hmm. And that's really a gift, Bernie. That's really a yeah. gift. Um, it is. And it, 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 for me, was part of my foundation in seeing that in a family. I will never forget, and certainly being able to spend time with you all again, you know, having our socially distant dinner. It was just like we fell right back in to step, you know? Yeah. It was yeah. like no time had passed. Yeah. So, you know, thank you for that. Um, I'm glad you came by. So to have her, you know, always be supportive of us, no matter what was going on, is amazing. And seeing how hard she worked, but never really thinking about it because, you know, I was like, ah, you know, it, it didn't seem like much. But as I got older, I started realizing how much she was actually doing by herself. It was amazing. And just knowing that, and like I said, never, I don't know, always, you know, important to give people a chance. And that, that's what I think I learned the most from her is to give people the chance. So, Bernie, you mentioned, you mentioned your brothers. Um, and and I, I knew all of them. We knew all of them well. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about them and the Evanston experience. So, as far as I can remember, because there's a lot of stuff that's great for me. Um, I lost a lot of memory when Perky passed away. Um, that was the hardest thing for me to ever deal with. Um, I didn't know how close we were until he was gone. And that affected everything in my life. Uh, mm. Yeah, I almost lost, lost everything because I couldn't focus anymore. Um, he was in a coma for over a year. Yep. So, yeah, and uh, that was devastating. When did that happen, Bernie? That happened in 94, he was in a motorcycle accident in Indianapolis, Indiana. Mm -hmm. He was running from the police, <laughs> something he did most of his life. And it was my nephew's motorcycle. Um, and he ended up crashing into a car, and no helmet. And, and yeah, and he ended up being in a coma for a year. I had just had my first child in 95. Um, my oldest. I remember going to my sister's house because she lived there. One of my older sisters, Gwen. Um, that's how he ended up there. And he had actually started working for an ambulance company before that. He had started, you know, going the right way and it was great. It was like, wow, he's finally got a job. And, you know, things were going well and then that happened. And so, you know, we had to drive up there and yeah, it was a blur. You know, Perky remains in my heart as well. Tell us a little bit about Perky. It's hard to describe him completely, but like I said, he he had this this personality that you know if you met him, you you know you loved him. He was that kind of guy, and uh, yeah, and I wow. felt like his time here was way too short. But you know, it certainly things was. happen, and you can't you know do that anything about it. Perky was yeah, he was that brother that I always wanted to grow up and be like. He was always, you know, doing something. If you met Perky, you loved him because he was just that, that personality was like that. Um, yeah, I mean, and I tried to follow him everywhere he went. He was actually um, a year and a half older than Tina, and Tina was um, my next oldest sibling. Yeah, so, you know, the three of us were pretty close because our ages were very similar. Yeah, he was just, you know, that brother, he loved to work with cars was his, were his passion. Um, I think he was like 14 years old when he 
had somehow gotten a car he bought from somebody or something. I don't know how he bought it at 14, but it was a Mustang. And he was he ended up making it run, <laughs> driving it. That was the beginning of his driving life because all he did was want to drive the car. I knew that, you know, he just loved cars. He loved everything about cars, which is where my son is today. He's the same way. And isn't it something that Carl and Perky share that same interest in cars? That's really pretty special. Yeah, and as far as Ronnie and Bobby, they were twins. They were the oldest boys. Bobby is still around here. He still um, does various things, jobs and stuff. Our podcast really looks at the duality of Evanston, right? And and yeah. and hearing and hearing your story about your brothers and you and what kind of made you focus um, didn't happen for a lot of very talented young black men. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to say that again: a, a lot of very talented. Yes. Young black men. We call Evanston this great melting pot of inclusion and diversity. But why did that happen for everybody in such a small city, right? Uh, Or what would you say are the reasons so many black young men fall by the wayside in Evanston? That's tough. But I'm going to say, in my opinion, I think a lot of it is due to the fact that there was no male father, you know, there were, the fathers were missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the only thing I can relate this to. And the mothers did the best they could. They, I mean, they did extraordinarily well. It's just that um, there was, you know, this group of guys that, had, you know, we, they were lost. I, I really felt, you know, blessed that I was able to find people that were my father. Like I said, Leroy, Doc, I worked with a crew leader. He was Armenian. This was the biggest racist in the world, but he accepted me for some reason. Uh, the man got to a point where when I worked for him and they would take me off his truck, he wouldn't leave the office. He said, I'm not leaving the office without burning. But I think you accepted him as opposed to him accepting you. Yes. Yeah, I get, yeah. But for me, it was like, I was in this place where it was a struggle every day. I had to work twice as hard as this white guy. You know that. Yes. And, you know, and it was, you know, bounce from truck to truck because nobody wanted the black guys, right? So, you know, to find a, a home and I was on the double bucket truck. We were the most influential truck in Tom Ed and Mount Prospect because we did all the work. We did all the live work. We did all the scary, dangerous stuff. Um, But that was one of the things as I got older and all I can do is relate that to my experiences with male figures that helped me, um, like you said, navigate situations to where you can turn them around to your advantage. It's the the village, right? The village. Yes, because you're starting behind the bullet, right? Because you're brown. First thing they see is you're brown. And what Mm. comes next? Those stereotypes. Yes. As you said, oh. needing to do double the work. Oh, yeah. Twice as hard. I worked twice as hard. So you raised your kids in Evanston. What do you tell them around the dinner table? Oh, I've always told them that. <laughs> and, you know, for them to be biracial, which, you know, so they, you know, it, it's sometimes it was hard for them to see it because they felt that they were being accepted, just like, you know, I did sometimes. But then if you really pay attention, you're not really being you're just being tolerated. You know what I mean, right? <laughs> you're just being tolerated. I, I, I exactly so, know what you mean. So it, it, it took some, some um, experiences for them to see that. And they saw that at the high school. Junior high school was elementary, was wonderful. And then when they got to the high school, bam. It was just like when all of us were there. You went back to your groups and that was it. You know, you played sports with people that were different. But other than that, that was as far as it went. You had some friends, but very few were really your friends. And Mm -hmm. they had to find that out for themselves. So four years ago, I was at Northwestern still. And every beginning of year, we would have a student affairs breakfast. And that's everybody in student affairs. They have breakfast and they would try to 
do something and around social justice sometimes. So this one time they did some social justice stuff and uh, they asked us to get up and speak about um, things that we felt weren't right. This was right after my son had went to uh, Norway. So when I get up to speak at this thing at Student Affairs, they ask me, so what's some of the things that you see that you know happen in the world? I'm like, okay, so let me tell you, being a black man with a son that's black, I says, my son was gone for a year in Norway. I mean, you know, thousands of miles away. <laughs> um, doing all kinds of stuff. I was less worried about him being thousands of miles away than I was when he was right in the dance. Now you go figure that out. But I wasn't afraid. You know, I was happy he was getting the experience of his lifetime and it was the best thing that ever happened. He comes back home the next year, all of those fears come back. This brings mm -hmm. me to a, a, a kind of more current question, right? The Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, the person that's sitting in the White House, and these deaths that are still happening at the hands of police. Man, what do you tell your children? I, I worry about my kids every time they leave the house now. And, you know, I've, I've always had that concern, but now it's even bigger because, you know, I, I've, I've always supported police and police departments. I've never had a, you know, a real dislike for police officers, but it's to the point where this stuff is rotten. It, it, it's, it, it's crazy because they have, no dis they have no regard for people of color, some of them. Did you have that conversation with your son about how to survive a traffic stop? Oh, yeah, I, that was years ago. Yeah, so what was that conversation like? Okay, so that conversation, when he first went to college, he decided to go to school in Terre Haute, Indiana, which is not far away. He was about three and a half hours away. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a decent school. It was small and it was private. So, you know, we went to check it out and all that, and he liked it. It's all engineering school. And we were like, okay, great. You know, and he was trying to play football freshman year. So it was a decent place and, you know, we felt comfortable. You know, he was on campus, so it wasn't a huge deal that first year. But it was the driving back and forth um, because he has to drive through Indiana, right? Um, I've never been pulled over in Indiana, but I've just always had or I've always been leery of driving anywhere going towards the south or anywhere in that direction. Um, and I've been fortunate never to have any incidents, but it's just a scary thing. And I had to tell him like, you know, dude, if you get pulled over, cause you know, sometimes he, you know, he gets snappy and short tempered with his parents like kids do sometimes. And I had to make sure he understood that he couldn't do that out, you know, in the streets and especially with the police, because first of all, they would be looking or expecting him to, you know, resist or whatever. So, you know, all I could tell him was, you know, you got to pay attention and you, you have to always know where you're at. Um, you have to, you know, not elevate to a level that's going to cause something to happen, you know, because we just don't know. And fortunately, he's never had any incidents, but that was, the, that was just scary, him being there. And, and I really, you know, once he was in school and, and then he moved off campus, he had some friends. He was still the only, you know, brown kid out there, but he was comfortable. And, you know, he bought a pickup truck and he, he was happy. And the little town, you know, we went there and we, you know, visited him and it wasn't, you know, it didn't feel super bad, but, you know, you see the, the you know, Confederate flags on some of the, you know, trucks and stuff, and it's like, eh, you know, but they didn't seem to bother anybody, you know, and, but it, it's hard that he's yep. got to drive to Indiana. You know, it was, the school is three hours away, and that was scarier for me than him being in Norway doing all that stuff for a year, and that's the kind of stuff you go through when you have a brown child, and especially a boy. A friend of mine told me, was talking to an African-American guy who was hiking in the wilderness of Alaska, and he saw bear prints. And he decided okay. to keep walking and he saw more and more bear prints and saw bears scat and it looked like it was fresh and he kept walking and obviously he didn't see any bears but this was i believe in alaska where you know uh grizzly bears oh yeah are <laughs> real right yes real deal and he said you know the interesting thing the moral of his story was that he felt more comfortable in the wilderness around grizzly bears 
than he did walking in Boulder, Colorado yeah. as a black man. I mean, I don't worry about it as much in Evanston, but I mean, as when they travel outside of Evanston, it's, it's scary. This isn't a perfect place either, but place I grew up and I know well, I know for the most part, he won't be you know, attacked or the police shouldn't bother him. So Bernie, we talk about your son and mm -hmm. we recognize what's happening to black boys and black men in the United States, but mm -hmm. there are also awful things happening to black girls and black women. How do you talk to your daughter? Well, with Michelle, I just don't let her go anywhere. <laughs> Smart man. Smart man, Bernie. <laughs> yeah. No, no. But don't honestly, get me no, started. I, mean, I know. But it's the same thing with Michelle. Michelle's little, she concerns me a little more sometimes because she went to Northwestern and got her, you know, engineering degree, industrial engineering, and she's super smart. And I, I'm still working on ways to make sure she understands. I know she understands, but she just chooses not to always accept what's going on. And maybe it's just a way of protecting herself, but those conversations I've had with my daughter as well. Fortunately, she was in school right here at Northwestern, so she's really never been anywhere. She went to Norway three months as well, doing some studying in the summertime there. But, you know, it, it, it's totally different. You know, she can walk around there and, you know, catch the train and all this stuff. And it's interesting that you mentioned how you just don't let her go anywhere because in our conversation with the Crawfords, talking about Mary's book, there had been a question that was asked at one of Mary's talks that were saying, there are the white girls, there are the black boys, where are the black girls? And you saying that, joking, not joking, in some ways I think that often what happened for black girls, even in that time, is that girls went home. We protected our girls in different ways, right? Yeah, yeah. But I found that interesting that you said that. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, and she's always, you know, been, you know, she's always with her friends. You know, she goes back and forth to Gurney to, you know, see her fiance now, but she's been doing that. And, you know, and I even talked to her then. I said, you know, because there was a young lady who I think uh, was in Wisconsin where someone had a traffic signal, from what I understand, threw lighter fluid on her and lit it or something. Yeah, the amazing thing about this young lady in her interview, she showed no anger, no disdain. And you can see, I mean, obviously the hurt, not only physically, but mentally in the anguish that she was going through. Mm -hmm. She still had the wherewithal and the hope when she said, if they're seeing this, I hope they turn themselves in. It just shows uh, amazing resolve and resilience of yeah. this young woman. But can't we have resilience and still not forgive? Do we have to forgive? So let me be clear for the audience. I think black people have forgiven far too long. Every day. <laughs> and every time we forgive, mm -hmm. we're slapped back in our face with the reality. Well, it's almost as though the more we forgive, the less we matter. It's the trope of the strong black woman who's not supposed to feel any pain and is supposed to be able to get through everything. It's the strong black man who goes out in the face of the hate and the possibility of not making it home at the end of the day. It's the bird watcher in Central Park who says, I forgive. Well, let me be very clear for our audience. I'm not that kind of brother. So and I know <clears throat> that this isn't you per se, it isn't you, and it isn't many people, but when you've had this happen day after day, over and over, and, and, and we keep our heads down and we keep our eyes straight ahead and our focus straight ahead, where does it come out? They, you know, we're, we, we have di more diabetes, we have more issues, health issues, Psychological oh, yeah. issues because of this, because not, there's no place for us to go. No. <clears throat> you know, when I was younger, if we went to a you know, psychiatrist or something, you'd be laughed at. Because they would say, that's not for you, right? Mm-hmm. 100%. So, yeah. And things like that. And, you know, we still don't take care of our mental health as well as we should. Because we've been told that you got to stay strong and just keep, <clears throat> keep going. So I, I believe it feels like you have 
you have through the conversations at home taught how to understand being a brown child. And I don't want you to skip over that. There are things you taught them. That is social emotional intelligence. That is something, is there a way that Evanston in particular has taught you and taught your kids simultaneously? Is there something in the conversations that you had that you believe that have transmitted what you learned? I think the biggest thing for me was when I, like I said, when I first started working someplace other than Evanston, that was eye-opening for me because I was in this bubble thinking, oh, every, every place is like this, right? I even recall some of my daughter's uh, high school friends, you know, that were white and go to college for the first year and, and be totally uh, coming back in shock because they're going, there was no black people. You know, even the white kids noticed that because she played lacrosse, which is mostly white kids. And they deal with the same thing where they were raised in Evanston and have diverse schools throughout their whole lives. And then they go to these colleges where there's zero diversity. So with me, it was, you know, always, I told you know, my kids how it was. I, they, they saw the experiences that I had at ComEd. They saw, you know, how much I worked. They, they know I had to miss a lot of things because of my job. And it was always about teaching them that it's not always going to be the same for them as, you know, some of their friends, but to not let that hold you back. Let me say this to you for you, because I think we experienced some of it. You, you also taught them how uh, a Black man can transform their identity and allow them to feel comfortable. Yeah. Right? And, and while your father may not have been as much in the home as you mm -hmm. would have liked him, you were present. You know, my dad did a, did the best he could. And when he got older, he before he passed away, he had quit drinking probably 10 years before he passed away because he was an alcoholic, you know. And, and we had experiences when we bought our first place. And my mom was living with us over in Monroe. You know, he actually helped me paint it. Mm -hmm. So we did have some good experiences, you know, later. Got to be with, the, you know, with his grandkids. They would actually go stay with him sometimes. And, uh, it, it, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all bad. And, you know, for years I was mad at him for, you know, ever wanting to take care, you know, take the boys. With him. But I, I forgave him for that because that was eating me up. I think, too, in Michael's point, that while you definitely exhibit what a parent should and can do by being there as a strong Black man, but I think also you've committed to never forgetting to remember what people did for you. That is the essential part of it is that I was given opportunities that I did not expect and, and to be able to understand those things and, and take them as they came and try to make the best of them. Yes. And I think that had I grown up differently or had more or whatever, I don't know if I would have been the same person. I, I, think, right. I think our struggles shape us, right? Yes, sir. So I think it's important. And I also think it's important for my kids to struggle. My wife doesn't always agree, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. My dad was the best painter I've ever seen in my life. My dad had big jobs that he worked on when I was younger. My mom was telling me about it. I remember one time he took us to the planetarium because he was painting there. So, you know, I was always proud of him for what he, you know, what he could do and all those things. So, and like I said, I just took, Everything that I learned and, and just tried to use it to better myself. Awesome. I think that was one of the biggest things for me. And then, like I said, with my son now, I try to do as much as I can to uh, always be supportive of him, and to, uh, but also let him be his own person. He usually drives back and forth to New Mexico by himself. But my point was is that he actually wanted me to come down there with him and drive back, which is just he usually he's never done that so i'm flying there sunday and then i'm gonna drive back with them next week pay it forward brother pay it forward. oh yeah i mean it's, it's just yeah I, I i was just shocked that he wanted me to because he <laughs> said yeah i want you to come out here and fool with the car with me and then we'll drive back and i'm like is this my son Who, who's that talking <laughs> here at evanston rules we have some value words inclusion diversity equity acceptance and love when you hear those words what do you think what 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 resonates with you that's tough um it felt inclusive inclusive to me but later on or as i you know 
open my eyes more. I, I don't think it's inclusive for everything. Um, I think uh, if you're well-to-do and if you fit into that group, it's inclusive, right? But if you're struggling to make it every day and things don't always go well for you, I don't know if it's always inclusive. Um, the love part, there, I think there is some love here, but I don't know. That's that's selective as well, I think. Um, and equity, you get that if you work for it. So important. <laughs> Thanks, but I I had a I made a lot of mistakes, and I'm I'm glad I had those mistakes though because it taught me a lot. I stayed away from the drugs, right. so, and I haven't drank now in probably 15 years. Wow! So, wow! Yeah. Will you tell me how you met Tamara? So I met my wife Tamara. Uh, it was actually through Perky, my brother. My wife came. She's actually from Norway, so so we've been married. Yeah, 26 years. Oh yeah. And people were saying we wouldn't be married longer than two years. It's amazing. Here we are, 26 years later. Kids are grown now, and yeah, yeah. It's been an interesting life. I had a lot of exposure based on her, and you know, going to Europe and stuff like that. So that was something I don't know had I would have done had I not met her. Maybe I would, but that you know, exposure was really different. So one last question, Bernie. Mm -hmm. Who is the most influential person in your life? Wow. <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, but if I have to really think back as far as I can and think about that, I would have to say my mom. You know, there was a lot of men or males in my life that helped me learn a lot of things, but I think my mom... Uh, took the place of my dad and my mom all in one and always supporting me and always encouraging me. So it definitely would have to be my mom. Thank you, Bernie. Yeah. Jackie Foster, an awesome human yep. being. Well, thank you, brother. Uh, yeah. I appreciate you. We appreciate you. Yeah, I, I thank you guys for inviting me, especially Lori's. I like I said, I was ready to say no at first. I'm like, no, I don't want to. Talk <laughs> you can't but, deny Lori's. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, I know. And I, I said, I, you cannot I deny me, right? I know that. Yes, and I tried, but it didn't work out for me. You know, you guys are part of it too. You know, because I remember everybody when I grew up. I had lots of people to look, you know, look up to, um, and you guys are still doing that today, right? Trying. Right. Yeah. Trying, so. That's what I'm saying, and, 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 and that's what it takes. Uh, you know, it's, it's the village. I want to thank everybody for joining us today and coming along on this journey, and that you'll follow along with us as we continue to air a new podcast. You can find us at evansonrules.com. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we look forward to hearing from you. Yeah, connect with us. We want to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you.